This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Cannabidiol, or CBD, is the popular natural remedy used for a variety of common ailments and is one of more than 100 chemical compounds called cannabinoids derived from the cannabis plant. Tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, is the main psychoactive cannabinoid found in cannabis. However, unlike THC, CBD does not have psychoactive properties. And this makes CBD an attractive option for those who are looking for relief from pain and other symptoms without the mind-altering effects of cannabis or other side effects related to some pharmaceutical drugs. There are claims this compound treats not only pain, but a variety of mental health issues, symptoms of malignancy, and may even have some cardiovascular benefits. But are all these claims true, and what's been proven, and what do we know about the safety of this product? We'll get the answers to these questions from our guests for this podcast as we discuss cannabidiol or CBD with Dr. Thomas Pittelkow, an anesthesiologist and pain medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Tom, thank you for joining us and um, looking forward to this interesting discussion. Boy, it's a real pleasure to be here and thanks for the opportunity. Sure. Well, let's start. I'm going to ask you to describe cannabidiol and how it relates to marijuana and hemp. How do we separate those three things? I'll just begin with, you know, it really is tough when you look at sort of how we separate all those different terms. As you highlighted nicely there in the early segment, cannabidiol is a phytocannabinoid and it's one of nearly a hundred different active compounds found in the cannabis plant. And there are several different sort of species of cannabis plants. And that's what we classically sort of think of as marijuana or uh, cannabis. Hemp is very specific because itself is a cannabis plant, but it is grown to have less than that 0.3% THC, typically yielding higher volumes of the cannabidiol or CBD. And why we like that, the thought then of using hemp is because really that those higher volumes of CBD are more favorable for our patient populations when we talk about this as an an agent because it's devoid of that psychoactivity that you typically would see with THC. And it has a lot of really unique proposed effects such as an analgesic, anti-inflammatory, and even an antioxidant. So there's a lot of hype right now about the use of CBD and what we can treat. There really is a lot of hype about it. Does this represent a recent discovery, uh, I mean, CBD and its potential benefits, is this something that's new? You know, in actuality, really, it's not. CBD was really truly first discovered back in 1940 by a chemist who was, who was analyzing, believe it or not, sort of a Minnesota wild hemp plant. And it, it itself was a cannabis sativa plant. And it was found as one of these isolates that I think was on the early years. And then into the 1960s, we go where certainly a lot of recreational use was leading to some investigational use. And, and Raphael McCullum over in Israel did a lot of basic science research, finding just sort of discovering THC as one of the primary psychoactive components uh, behind that. It wasn't really then until the 1990s where we began to sort of truly see legalization here in the U.S. and the more mainstream use, whether it's medicinal and or recreational, that's sort of this recent surge. And certainly when you look at the medical literature over the last decades, probably 20 years or so, 
there's literally a precipitous incline that we see with the interest in trying to better understand the mechanisms behind how cannabis and all of its various chemical compounds work together to help provide all these various health benefits. Now, you mentioned the legality. Let's talk about that a little bit, because I know there have been some issues with people traveling with this substance and going from one state to another. So is CBD legal from both the federal and all the state standpoints? Yeah, boy, this is a really tricky situation. At the end of the day, I always try to remind the patients when we're talking about this, cannabis itself is technically a federally illegal substance because it is on that level one of the Controlled Substance Act, right up there with all the other things that we know are bad, like heroin, cocaine, a few of these others, which is really intriguing because at the end of the day, there's never been a documented death directly due to the use of cannabis. Now, when we talk about the cannabis landscape in America, it's very colorful in the sense that there's a lot of state regulatory actions in play as you look at whether you're in New York or California and then anywhere in between. CBD is, again, as I said earlier, a little bit unique because typically most of the CBD products nowadays are coming from a hemp-based plant. That's been protected under the the Farm Bill for for a number of years and sort of been updated most recently during the last administration, again, being very specific about the concentrations of THC. So CBD is sort of a younger brother who oftentimes gets forgotten when when we're sort of analyzing cannabis because THC is sort of the big bad brother that always is the one that uh, is getting the bad rap. So CBD, technically speaking, is legal when it's coming from a hemp plant. But even when we look across the states, there's a lot of individual natures of each state's laws that will affect its individual kind of constituents of that state. In theory, I tell most of my patients, if it's a CBD pure product, you can travel from state to state. If you're part of the Minnesota Medical Cannabis Program, for instance, or other state-based cannabis programs, and you get a cannabis product that has higher percentages of THC, you really can't cross a state line, even go from, say, Minnesota to Iowa with that product, because again, then you're going to be seen as transporting a level one controlled substance across the state line. So it's really wise to explain that to our patients so they don't uh, get into trouble going from one state to another. Well, let's talk a little bit about the proposed benefits of this substance. And one big one is uh, relief of pain. Is there good evidence that uh, this does do that? I'm a board certified pain physician, hospice and palliative care physician. So certainly many of the patients that I see come to see me exactly for that reason. At the end of the day, I try to tell most of my patients that they're of all the things that we have, probably the most robust data is supporting its use in the territory of pain control. Uh, as we've highlighted a little bit earlier, though, there, there's a lot of challenges that go along with that because uh, at the end of the day, no study is perfect. And, and trying to tease out some of the nuances in various pain conditions can be really challenging. I think when we truly sort of analyze the data, particularly neuropathic pain, really sort of pain derived from a neuro-based source, whether a direct nerve injury, a spinal cord injury, sort of other sort of nervous type injuries, that's probably where the data is the greatest, supporting the role of cannabis, possibly even CBD for pain. Now, today we're talking specifically about CBD. And what I will say is truly there's never been a randomized controlled trial, even some sort of prospective case controlled series that have studied CBD pure product on pain. What I tell most of my patients is that at least what I believe based on my assessment of the data and my medical opinion, 
there really probably is the greatest role for my balanced part of the cannabis plant when you're looking at a THC to CBD combination, probably in a one-to-one -one type ratio. Sometimes you can start to skew the numbers a little bit if you bump up the THC a little bit more or you bump up the CBD. And many of these sort of state-based cannabis programs are so tightly controlled that they can have a very good uh, margin when they are reporting sort of those percentages to, to the patients. What's really challenging when we're looking at CBD products as a whole though, and we'll talk about this, I think a little later, is that there really isn't much regulatory aspects so that if someone tells me that they're taking CBD for their pain, my first question is them, what does that look like? Do you have your product? Can you show me? Can we do a little bit more investigation so I can better understand what they're actually taking? So it sounds like you're saying it's got some benefits for neuropathic pain. Is that mm -hmm. correct? Correct. So there may not be any actual you know, research that looks at this, but as a pain specialist, how would you rank this as a neuropathic pain reliever compared to some of our pharmaceutical products that we use for neuropathic pain? Is it weaker, equal, greater than? Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, at the end of the day, I practice academic medicine. So I'm always trying to synthesize and analyze the greatest and latest evidence. I typically really, given the information and knowledge that we have about cannabis and particularly CBD products, I tend to roll that into my early discussions with my patients. Say when we're talking about non-opioid adjuvants or adjunct therapies, lots of different terms we use to try to uh, focus on more supportive type therapies that are not opioid based. I will oftentimes talk to my patients very openly about this. Truth be told, I think because cannabis has had such a bad rap for many years, Many patients don't feel comfortable sharing that with their providers. And this is not an uncommon, whether you're sitting in a primary care office or even a subspecialty office like mine. And I think sometimes just offering that opportunity to talk about what they found to be helpful. I'm just very direct with them. Do you use any sort of cannabis product, including THC, CBD, you know, whether it's street obtained or whether it's through a, a program, sometimes it's even through a cousin in Colorado, right? So these are the things that I like to ask my patients so that I can help facilitate a conversation to better understand. But at the end of the day, I involve it early in my conversation, which right up there with all the other non-opioid adjuvants. And I oftentimes joke with my patients because at the end of the day, any medicine, even what we think of as often benign medicines, like a Tylenol or a non-steroidal, like an ibuprofen, they all are going to have some degree of side effects and really trying to educate that patient on, Hey, what are you willing to put up with in order to help improve your pain? That's where I'm going to try to help them make a good decision based on what we know and sort of what they can tolerate. Okay. Well, how about for its use in some of the mental health disorders, anxiety, maybe as an antidepressant. And I've even read about some uh, claims that it might improve sleep quality. Any evidence to support these claims? One of my good colleagues who, who is uh, exceptionally well-trained is also a psychiatrist and a pain physician, internist, anesthesiologist. So a lot of accolades. And he and I have had some good conversations because at the end of the day, cannabis is not a benign substance right? And particularly, uh, we know uh, it can cause a lot of habitual use in many folks and, and even uh, help many patients become addicted to this. Now, typically of the addictive type medicines, this is on the lower spectrum, but it definitely is one that I oftentimes try to counsel my patients on. Specifically, when we talk about mood-related uh, behaviors like anxiety, depression, you know, even sleep disturbance, it's really challenging. Again, working in pain, we know that these are oftentimes very 
coupled symptoms for, for many folks. Di comorbid diagnoses of anxiety, depression, and chronic pain run high in the chronic pain population. So I try to uh, encourage patients, again, if we can use a medicine that's gonna help multiple different symptoms or multiple different diseases, that seems to be very effective for me. The data on anxiety and depression is a little bit interesting. When you look at the dosing effect, again, there's not a perfect dosing strategy when we're utilizing a CBD product for various reasons, but there is some data out there talking about the use of CBD treating depression and anxiety symptoms. And, and I think it's really intriguing, particularly for folks, because there is activation of the serotonergic and norepinephrine pathways. Again, many a times we're trying to utilize more standard type therapies. I'll put that in quotes because selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the selective serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, some of the tricyclic antidepressants, you know, sometimes even these really refractory cases may do really well with a higher dose CBD. That higher dose CBD also may translate into improved sleep quality for some folks. Again, there's not been any true prospective randomized controlled trials looking at this. If anything, a lot of it's retrospective kind of case reported, but uh, there's some interesting data coming out about sort of higher dose CBD possibly being a little bit more anxiolytic and a little bit potentially more sedative. Okay. I think some of the early use of this product was in uh, some of the symptoms of malignancy, like uh, nausea and vomiting. So I assume there must be some uh, benefits to these claims. Is that correct? There is. And, and certainly we recognize, you know, there's always different areas of the medical practice across the world. Certain products that are out there do offer a combination, again, of a THC CBD product, and that those are more readily available in Europe. And there has been some important clinical data obtained from prospective trials looking at that. But again, that's a very specific manufactured product that has been shown to be very effective in cancer patients with profound nausea, even some even chemo-induced nausea not even just uh, disease related. So when I talk to my cancer patients about this as an option, and again, many of our medical oncologists and the medical oncology practice has been very proactive over the last several years about talking to their patients about cannabinoid-based therapies to see if we can't help ameliorate some of those really troublesome symptoms of nausea and vomiting. Mm -hmm. And how about in the neurologic fields? I was reading that it may be a, a good antispasmodic for patients with um, MS, Mm -hmm. or possibly an anticonvulsant and those with seizure disorders. So right now in the United States, we only have one FDA approval cannabinoid product, which is high dose CBD. A PDLX is, is its brand name. And that's, that's used for real refractory pediatric epilepsy syndromes. It's unique because they went through a lot of turmoil to really sort of get this approved, right? Because you had to have a very purified product. We're giving this to really challenging patients with refractory disease and then a pediatric population. But what that clinical data did show is that it really was helpful at reducing a lot of the neuroinflammatory, neuroexcitatory emotions that were resulting in seizure disorders, particularly for young children. There is that indication. Of course, we like to extrapolate out, right, medicine. So how does that affect other areas? Certainly for real refractory epilepsy syndromes, I, I do believe there may be some off-label use currently being used by various neurologists across the country, and certainly trying to have some interest in, in developing some clinical trials using that uh, FDA-approved medication for other intractable epilepsy syndromes besides what the, the two pediatric syndromes right now. As far as MS and spasticity, again, it kind of gets back to a little bit of what is actually going into that medicine. 
CBD tends to be a component oftentimes of a combination with THC because there is sort of that yin and yang effect. It's a, it's a balancing effect. You may get the sort of euphoric high, some of the, the analgesic properties that we're trying to target with the THC, but the balancing of the sort of over high that you, people may get by that CBD. And again, I tend to use very simple language with my patients. It's trying to find that balance. So in patients with centrally mediated upper motor neuron spasticity, say from MS, or even uh, folks that have central neurologic injuries, brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, there is some data out there looking at neuropathic agents and how do we help control some of their pain and, and spasticity that may be related to their pain. There does seem to be some very positive experiences. Again, I, I don't like to quote numbers necessarily always to folks because at the end of the day, all the data we have, I, I often joke, it, it's imperfect. It's not the full picture, but we try to utilize the best information we have as we talk about patients with challenging symptoms. Mm -hmm. And finally, I wasn't aware of this, but I was reading about the potential cardiovascular benefits and that it may have some uh, antihypertensive features. Mm -hmm. It's quite interesting. You know, the more we use something, right, the more we kind of learn about it. There it has been some, certainly some animal data and some preclinical data looking at sort of how does CBD potentially affect the cardiovascular system. There is some theories that it kind of reduces some of the pro-inflammatory milieu, possibly changing some of the endovascular and endothelial cell activation, possibly even some case reports out there about reducing ventricular arrhythmias and various other sort of life-threatening conditions. And even when you're administered to folks that are undergoing active cardiac disease or, or myocardial infarctions, the thought being possibly that that sort of immune modulating uh, effect uh, and really maybe even uh, altering sort of the typical evolution of an MI is quite uh, perplexing and intriguing to many people. Again, at the end of the day, I don't have great data to support that or say that, but there is some data out there talking about how it has its effects on its systemic cardiovascular. Some of the, the sort of side effects I do warn my patients about, and this is kind of talks a little bit about that blood pressure regulation, we don't have perfect dosing. And, and this is oftentimes really challenging for clinicians, because at the end of the day, when I sit there and say, yep, you have hypertension, your numbers say this, we're going to prescribe this amount of medicine. If that doesn't work, we're going up to this next amount of medicine. It's a little bit different when we're prescribing or sort of advising, really, because we can't prescribe a level one controlled substance, otherwise we'll lose our license. Advising patients to start low and go slow. Because on higher doses of CBD, for sure there is some associated hypotension, lightheadedness, because of that likely profound cardiovascular effect. So I always tell folks, let's be cautious, but certainly I'm not going to use it as a first-line therapy. Again, I'm not a cardiologist, but I'm, I wouldn't use it as a first-line therapy for treatment of hypertension, but it's certainly something that could be utilized as an adjunct. Mm -hmm. Well, in general, it sounds like this product has a lot of potential uh, benefits and all quite varied, but... Uh... Sounds like we also need a lot more information about it. You mentioned lightheadedness. Is CBD well tolerated? Are there any other potential adverse effects from the product? This is why I tend to offer it to my patients on the initial spectrum of conversation, because really at the end of the day, it's a pretty well tolerated medication, particularly when you take a sort of a stepwise fashion, start low, go slow, right? Like the old adage has said to us for many, many years, the medicine is well tolerated. There are a few side effects I always caution folks on. The biggest is trying to understand how patients take it, right? There are a number of ways to get medicines into our body. Most commonly CBD is produced in sort of a, a fashion of an edible or an ingestion-based therapy. So whether that's a pill, a tincture, an oil, there can be various edible options like gummies and cookies. There can be smokable options. So 
I always just try to remind patients, however you choose to take that medicine, that's the typical side effect you might see. If you're going to consume a lot of gummies, that may upset the gastrointestinal system. You may get a little bit of some loose stools. If they're going to smoke a CBD product, you know, we had that scare several years ago of the vapor associated acute lung injury that actually led to some pretty catastrophic events because of a, a poor product manufacturing. And so these patients were vaping harmful fats that were getting into the lung and essentially causing horrible lung devastation. So at the end of the day, I always try to tell my patients, you know, buyer beware, understand what you're buying and how you're going to ingest it in certain ways that you may take it into your body may affect sort of the typical side effect profile. The other thing I also for sure caution on is the fact that this medicine is metabolized by the liver to the best of our, our knowledge, particularly the CYP450 system, which of course there are a lot of different subtypes in. The patients we see more and more every day across the, this medical spectrum are becoming more complex. They have more chronic disease. And really that can play a significant role as we consider how these medicines also interact. But at high, high doses of, C, T, uh, high, high doses of CBD, excuse me, there has been shown to be some degree of hepatic impairment. So if I have a patient on higher dosing, I'm going to leave that generic because again, it depends on the product, but when we're talking hundreds of milligrams, routine checking of, of LFTs, sort of hepatic function, I think is pretty important because you don't want to miss any sort of early changes that might be present. So in addition to potential liver toxicity, are there other safety issues with this product? Are there patients who maybe should not use this product? The folks that I'm most cautious with using CBD or any sort of cannabis product, the primary ones are children. So anyone under 18, I really don't consider that an option for them, particularly just because of that, that sort of lifetime dependence slash addiction risk. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go down the street and buy more addictive products like tobacco and alcohol, way more addictive than cannabis. That being said, I still don't encourage it in any sort of use. If, you know, if you're sitting there in your 40s and 50s, the likelihood of becoming addicted to a product like that is extremely low. So if you have an addiction history, that's also a, sort of a, a warning flag to me. Again, much more, I'm going to need to keep an eye on things. I need to sort of make sure that we have regular follow-up so that there's not uh, early trends that we could be intervening on. But those are the main things, really pediatric populations for me, uh, specifically, as I talk about kind of the risk for potential for addiction, but then also people that have comorbid addiction histories or polysubstance use histories. That's a little bit more concerning for me. But beyond that, even in folks that have complex cardiopulmonary disease, neurologic disease, I'm still willing to sort of have a conversation about the possibility. It's just in a very gradual, controlled fashion. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the hepatic metabolism of CBD that raises the question of potential drug-drug interactions. Are there some medications that we need to be careful about in the use with the use of CBD? Yeah, some of those subtypes, the 3A4 subtype, the 2C19, 2B, all these various subtypes, when you really look at it, you know, even though I'm sitting here saying I'm willing to have a conversation with a lot of our complex chronic patients, those are the same patients that are taking the, the challenging medications that are all metabolized. Mm -hmm. So again, that's where I say that start low, go slow mentality is really going to be key because it's all the antihypertensives. It's a lot of the neuroleptics that, you know, you're using to treat uh, various neurologic conditions. And sometimes even some of the other inhalation medicines for management of, of chronic lung disease. And that's particularly important because these are all the medicines where we know we need a relatively sort of narrow therapeutic window. 
to be beneficial to our patients, such as using Coumadin or using an antihypertensive or using certain anti-epileptic medicines, that window is much tighter. Once you start getting outside that window, you start to run the risk of intolerable side effects, potentially uh, harmful side effects. So my goal is always trying to reduce the morbidity for my patients, but also have an informed conversation about recognizing that nothing that we do necessarily is perfect. We're going to do, make the best educated discussion and decision we can, but we're going to try to do that in a very thoughtful and meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Earlier in your comments, you mentioned FDA. Is there some FDA involvement in the safety and purity of this, uh, of this product? Boy, Dr. Chaka, I wish there was. I really wish there was. And, and there's a couple of papers recently that have, have delved into this a little bit more because at the end of the day, there really isn't. The farm bill kind of protects hemp, particularly, and then the state-based programs all have their own sort of independent regulatory mechanisms at play. But at the end of the day, as, as many of our listeners can certainly attest to, you might be able to walk into a local gas station, you could walk into a local liquor store, you could walk into the mom and pop restaurant, all of which are going to be selling a CBD product, all of which are going to be different. And when we really sit down and try to analyze that, there's a whole slew of different things that are being reported just because a package says there's 20 milligrams of CBD per dose of pill. Does that actually mean that? I think at the end of the day, I have no idea. What I try to tell my patients is to be an educated consumer, educated buyer. There's a couple of things I always remind them of because this is a non-regulatory medicine, although we're moving towards, I think we're having some positive steps. The FDA wants to better regulate it. A lot of it's like the, the nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals that are out there on the shelves, you know, over the counter type agents. A lot of that's not regulated because it's sort of a, a phyto-based, right? It's, it's kind of plant-based product. I try to say to my patients, the most reputable CBD organizations that I've, I've seen, number one, have sort of a regulatory body that they stamp on their website or on the bottle. It says, hey, we are certified by this organization. Number two, they have an adverse event reporting on their website or something because they want to know, right? They want to know if so-and-so is getting a a horrible reaction because that, that might be affecting other people. And then that may affect their bottom line when all of a sudden people start buying that product. And the third most important thing is that at the end of the day too, they do report independent third-party testing. If you really dig through some of these CBD product websites, and there, trust me, there are a lot out there because it's a big moneymaker right now. You, you start clicking around. If they don't have it clearly listed on their website that, hey, this is our third-party analyst. Here's the exact sheet on the gummies, the pills, the tinctures, the oils. I try to tell my patients I would be really reluctant. And it's just like when you go into the the local convenience store, you know, one of our local video stores here still sells this and it's on the big billboard. You have anxiety, you have pain, come in for your CBD. I've walked in, I've talked to them. It's a little vial sitting on the counter and there's nothing verifying the product. So I, I just always tell my patients, be cautious, trust, but verify. Yeah. Well, it sounds like this is being considered more of a nutritional supplement. And uh, as with other nutritional supplements, they can have adverse effects. They can have drug-drug interactions. And Mm -hmm. there's issues with uh, purity in those as well. So I I think we just have to have our our patients be aware of that. Well, Tom, you gave us some interesting points about CBD. Can you kind of summarize by giving us maybe two or three key points? Again, I I certainly appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you today. Cannabis is here to stay, and I think it behooves all of us to try to better understand how that affects uh, our patients. 
I think the three main take-home points I want to emphasize is number one, it's okay to ask your patients about it. Because I think at the end of the day, the more we understand about them, the better they're going to be able to kind of relate to us and, and benefit from the therapies that we do have to offer. Number two, I definitely think that there's a role of using cannabidiol specifically and possibly even cannabis as a bit of a whole plant product in the treatment of many different medical conditions. The specific nature of which condition, as we've kind of talked a little bit about today, is there's a lot of overlap. And we would love it if we had a single pill that could cure everything. I don't think that's cannabis or cannabidiol, like a lot of places do claim. But at the end of the day, the role of, of cannabis, uh, cannabidiol specifically, I, I think needs to be on uh, the forefront of our conversations with our patients. And lastly, I can't uh, say it enough. It really is start low, go slow. There's sort of a biphasic effect that we think with cannabis products. You know, maybe lower doses may be a little bit more activating. And then the higher doses tend to be a little bit more sedating. So it's trying to find that sweet spot, just like any medicine we use in, in our fields is really trying to sort of be thoughtful about the dosing and the strategies and just be aware kind of of, of how we're, we're utilizing that medicine with whatever intended benefit it has. We've been discussing cannabidiol or CBD with Dr. Thomas Pittelkow, an anesthesiologist and pain medicine specialist at the Mayo Clinic. Tom, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. Again, it was a great pleasure, and thanks so much for having a conversation. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Music